0: Tonight's message will be sermon number 18 in the series of messages on the subject of infant salvation, and the message title tonight will be the Calvinistic theory involving the question, Are All Deceased Infants Saved? Are All Deceased Infants Saved? This will be the third in the series within the series on in dealing with the Calvinistic theory. In the other two messages dealing with the Calvinistic view of salvation as it relates to an infant, a child in its uh, immaturity, we have answered the question are infants as infants savable? And we have taken the positive position that even though they are incapable of of a conscious understanding of their relationship with God and their duty, they are objects of salvation. In that the Calvinistic position bases itself upon an unconditional election, an unconditional atonement, and an unconditional regeneration, then it does not condition itself upon something which the sinner must first do before God can work, so in that light. The infant is savable. God can work in that fashion. Then we looked at last week, then if a child is savable, how are they saved? And we applied the gospel to the situation, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, so that a child can be an object of all of those Trinitarian works of the divine Godhead now tonight we come to a a most difficult question in which that we have much more weight upon us to attempt to show and that is are all deceased infants saved now in the start of this series of messages some 18 or 19 messages ago i stated that it would be my position that i can conscientiously and intelligently and rationally and biblically affirm that all infants dying in infancy are saved and ultimately glorified in heaven. And now it has come down to this time in which it's going to rest upon my shoulders to attempt to prove that. That is quite a task, and I recognize it. But I affirm that, and I believe that it can be done. There are two other categories of Calvinistic believers which take a different position. Uh, One segment of Calvinists take the position that since the scriptures speak so little in regard to the subject of infant salvation, it is unwise to make any statement regarding the destiny of infants beyond that which the scriptures themselves speak and so they say that because the scriptures do not clearly speak to this issue, then it should be left alone and not dealt with, so that we could, under that understanding, not take any position regarding the destiny of a child dying in infancy. There are others within the Calvinistic camp, either in the paedobaptist baptist or the Baptist camp, who do assert on the theological grounds rather than biblical grounds the belief that some infants dying in infancy do perish and spend eternity in hell. And they have various grounds in which they take for this. Primarily in the paedobaptist camp, that of in the attempt to defend the covenant child concept, it is held that only the children of believing parents are included in the covenant of grace. Therefore, if a child was born to an unbelieving parent and died in that in that state, they would not be in the covenant of grace and hence would not be an object of salvation. But I've also encountered Baptist pastors who assert that God can and does justly damn some infants. And they give various positions for doing so. They have no biblical principle uh, for doing so other than the justice of God. Now, it will be our attempt tonight to try to show and to prove that the premise that all infants dying in infancy are saved from this very understanding of what the justice of God actually entails. What is the purpose of God in inflicting punishment upon a person in hell? And can an infant be an object of the justice of God in the actual execution of the penalty of punishment in hell? Now, before that, we attempt to delve in at length to the issue at hand, I want to, in brief review, state... The summation of the Calvinistic theory of salvation and apply it to the matter of infants. According, now if you are here tonight and this is the first time you have ever heard any such things as be presenting, then we all, we ask that you give a fair ear. We do not ask that you make any decision in regard to the matter, but give a hearing. He that hath ears, why, let him hear. Uh, There are many things which I do not believe in, in other positions of theology, religion, and uh, politics, and so forth. But I have found that it is incumbent upon me to do one thing, and that's at least be honest enough to know what the other fellow's position is. To be able to learn what he's saying, and then to be able to comprehend it in the light of the whole issue. It's the most dishonest thing to attribute things to another fellow if he really doesn't believe that. And that works both ways. We must try to do that. We're attempting as much as possible within this series of messages to try to do that. That's why we spent 18 messages presenting all the various theories of infant salvation from the different segments of the Christian church to try to get their understanding on this matter. According to the position of theology known as Calvinism, that speaking in the broadest terms, salvation is accomplished in the purpose of the divine trinity itself. Speaking in broad terms, the Father decreed to elect people, the Son to execute that decree by redeeming those people and the Spirit of God to apply that which the Son purchased by regenerating those people. So that in that decretive process of salvation, we have decretal salvation in eternity past. We have executed salvation upon the cross some 2,000 years ago, and we have applied salvation by the Spirit in the actual experience of the Christian. So if we would draw an analogy, we could say that God the Father played the role of a divine architect in designing our mansion in heaven. The the Son of God played the role of the divine contractor in coming and building our mansion in heaven, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit plays the role of the owner in that he comes and applies salvation to the people and takes them to their home in heaven, which was designed by the Father and built there by the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that if you do hold that there are many mansions in heaven, I trust that you will then hold, regardless of what your position is, that there is not, there are not going to be any vacancies in heaven. That the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father did not design a whole bunch of mansions up there, and there's going to be some vacancies and some cobwebs building up in eternity because some people didn't make it in the, in, into the inheritance of their mansion. So within the concept of the Calvinistic theory that they hold, or we hold, that There is unity of agreement within the divine trinity. The Father chooses, the Son executes in redemption, and the Spirit applies the redemptive merits of Christ. In the soteriology, then, of Reformed theology known as Calvinism, this power of salvation is known as grace. The Calvinistic system emphasizes salvation by grace, through faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, grace is the dynamic power in every application of the atonement of Christ. It is the power of grace which begins, continues, develops, and perfects all Christian experience, so that in strict literalness and with perfect exactitude, The whole scheme of salvation is a scheme or plan of salvation by grace. Regeneration, the initial act of salvation wherein the sinner's nature is changed from a sinful heart to a heart which loves the Lord Jesus Christ, is an act of grace. Faith, the first conscious act. "...of a quickened soul which accepts Christ as its Savior, and the ground of its hope is an act of grace. It's a saving grace, induced and produced by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Repentance, the second converting act, in which the soul turns from self unto a life of commitment toward the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is also induced by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Justification is also an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons sin and accepts the person as righteous on account of the righteousness of Christ imputed to that person and received by faith. Adoption is that act of grace wherein God bestows the privileges of sonship upon those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctification is that act of progressive grace wherein man's nature is transformed from that of sinfulness into the divine character of the Lord Jesus himself, wherein one day When that work is consummated and finished, the recipient of salvation will be as righteous as Jesus Christ himself, not only imputed but imparted. He will possess a nature that is as righteous as Jesus Christ is even now. And then finally, glorification is an act of grace which is the consummation of the whole redemptive process which consists in the translation of the sinner from earth to heaven, wherein he shall be able to enjoy his God forever and ever and ever. All of that is grace. Thus, to the Calvinistic mind, the redemptive system of salvation from the start to finish in Christian experience is strictly and truly a program executed by grace and not by human works in any fashion. That is, it is not of works, not of man's acting, but it is of program wherein God acts upon man to produce what God desires out of man. It is a new creation. Since the infant, while he is incapable of works, that is, actions of any kind, Therefore, according to the Calvinistic system, may very well be a subject of grace. He may be operated upon by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He may have his life changed and fitted as an infant for a life in heaven. The little baby's heart may be regenerated. To it, the atoning righteousness of Christ may be divinely imputed as the ground of its justification. The child may be adopted into the family of God, even as it is adopted into a human family. Its infant life may be cleansed by the same purifying grace which purges the adult nature of of sin, and that little infant may have its body glorified in the resurrection. So that there is nothing in the person as an infant which would hinder or prevent God from saving an infant according to the Calvinistic position. But what shall be done about faith and repentance in the infant? These two acts, on the infant's part, confessedly he cannot perform, and the scriptures lay down faith and repentance as preconditions of saving benefits. How? Can the child be received into everlasting life who cannot repent and believe? And this is the problem which is rest not with the Calvinist, but with the Arminian. As we have seen, this is the biggest problem which they have. In that the Arminian holds that God cannot change human nature without the free will and consent of man to do so. Since the infant cannot consciously grant that, then the Armenian is the one which has the real problem with infant salvation, and therefore they can either then go, as the Roman Catholic does, by saying that all unbaptized infants then must go to a place called limbo, a place which is neither heaven nor hell, a neutral place, and spend eternity, or they must do what the evangelical Armenian does who understands his position. He must have that infant be given a second probationary state after its death, wherein it will grow into an adult and there determine its eternal destiny. But the Calvinist has no problem with this matter of repentance and faith. If we understand that in the Calvinist way of thinking... Repentance and faith are not the meritorious grounds of salvation. They are not what causes a person to be saved. And this is what is so difficult for the evangelical Arminian believer to understand. He sees that the Bible commands repentance and faith. The Calvinist agrees the Bible commands repentance and faith. But the evangelical Armenian views repentance and faith as the meritorious causes which releases the flow of grace for God to act. The Calvinist does not see those as in that light, but they see repentance and faith not as causes opening the door for the grace of God, but as connecting instruments to make the person conscious of what God has done internally within the nature. That is, repentance and faith bring into one's consciousness the benefits of being atoned by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith's function is not to save, but it is to reveal salvation in human experience. Jesus is the Savior, not repentance and faith. And if we ever can grasp that, then we see then that we give all the glory to Jesus, the Savior, not to repentance and faith. Repentance and faith function is to bring out of the subconscious where regeneration takes place, a conscious awareness that salvation has come to that individual's life. For example, if you go over here to the electrical outlet, and you examine that outlet, you may not be conscious that there's electricity in there. But you stick your finger in that outlet, and you're soon going to have a real consciousness that there's something already there. Now, you did not put it there. You became conscious of it already being there. Thus, in that analogy, repentance and faith are not the acts of man which release the flow of electrifying grace for God to save, but the regenerating grace of God takes the initiative, changes the sinner from dead in trespasses and sins to life, down in the subconscious nature where he is unaware of God's acting, and repentance and faith bring out into his consciousness that God has acted. So that faith cometh by what? By hearing. It's something that suddenly is there, just as the light is turned on. So a person becomes consciousness of their faith in Christ. This is the great error which I fell into as a child by very sincere people. I was told to go to a church altar and there pray through until God saved me. And what I was trying to do was to make my prayer the Savior. But it is not prayer, it is not anything in my hand I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. And therefore, from the Calvinist position then, we believe that regeneration takes place below the consciousness of the human level in the inner man. And faith and repentance are those exercises which bring this work to our consciousness, wherein that we are made aware that we have been made a new man in Christ Jesus. It's called the new birth. The moment that I was conceived and born physically, I do not consciously remember that. Do you, Brother P? Hmm? Do you remember that? Well, it must have happened because I'm aware of it now. I'm aware of it now. I'm conscious I'm alive tonight. Now, I don't remember the exact moment that God regenerated my soul. I know it's pretty close, but I know this. I know that God showed me I was a sinner, and I know that I suddenly realized that if I died, I'd have to have Christ for my Savior. I became conscious of a need of a Savior. Now, what had God done? He had regenerated me in my subconscious area, of which repentance and faith, which were my duties to perform, became aware. And they were the instrument which connected me with a realization that salvation is not in me. It's in the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, therefore, in that particular way of viewing this, Then since an infant dies in its pre-conscious period of life, there is no need for faith and repentance to be manifested to it or to others. It dies in a pre-consciousness state. And since repentance and faith have no office to perform but to bring to one's consciousness an awareness of salvation, then certainly then an infant could be an object of the saving grace of God. Suppose that I had been born as a child with a title deed to a million dollars worth of property, and I had inherited that from an estate which had been left me by my parents. Now, I am already legally in possession of that property. But it is not until I reach conscious maturity as a child that I can comprehend what all is involved that I am actually a landowner. Now, what would happen to me if I should die before I ever become conscious that I own a million dollars worth of property? Hmm? I would still have died a landowner, but not conscious of my inheritance. Thereby the infant can be born as an heir of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if it dies in that state, it would not cease to become an heir, but it would just die in an unconscious state, not yet made aware that it was to be a recipient of the saving grace of God. So the Calvinist then holds that repentance and faith are not functions designed to save a person but they are instruments designed to connect the work of God's grace to the conscience of the sinner, making them aware that they have been made a recipient of God's grace. Now, we must distinguish between salvation as a fact and salvation as a recognition and a sensible feeling. Now, some get in a great deal of ups, uh, of, 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 uh, Uneasiness, when we talk about salvation as a feeling, some people place all kinds of emphasis on feeling, which is unhealthy, and others place none. And I don't belong to either camp. I do believe that salvation is a feeling in the sense that you ought to be conscious that you've got it. I don't think it's something that you just accept as a historical fact because even the devil believes that. Even the devil believes that there is a God and that Jesus died for sinners. But regenerating grace makes the child of God an heir of salvation and makes its salvation a fact. But if the child dies in its immaturity before it is capable of either repenting or believing, Its salvation in this life does not become to a conscious awareness or a joyous feeling or an evangelical obedience. But if the regenerated infant lives on into maturity, then what was planted in its nature will develop into conscious faith and repentance as we saw last week it did in the life of John the Baptist himself. That is, in if the infant dies, it dies experiencing a religious experience in infancy, even as it is yet childish in its mind and its body and is not fully developed, it is not fully developed in its Christian experience. So, it is not necessary for it to manifest the fruit of grace, which is repentance and faith. That is, strictly to say... If the regenerated infant had not died and it had come to age, it would have, under the influence of the regenerating grace of God, come to repent, believe, and obey the gospel. What is an infant? An infant is but an immature adult. Now, you reflect upon that. If I had a little baby here tonight and I'd hold it up before you, I could say everything that's in that baby is in this adult out here. Got two hands, two feet, two eyes, two ears, a heart, so forth. It's just immature now, what is a regenerated infant? Hmm? What is a new Christian? a regenerated infant's just an immature Christian for the scripture speaks of those who have been newly regenerated as being what? babes in Christ, babes in Christ, immature have all of the works of grace that an adult has, but not developed. Now, since that is the case then, then the child that dies in infancy can be atoned for, can be regenerated without manifesting the mature evidences of a work of grace, which are repentance and faith. If, however, this be not allowed, and repentance and faith and evangelical obedience be viewed, as the Arminian says, as the grounds of salvation, the conditions of salvation, then irrefutable logic demands that it be impossible for an infant to be saved under that system. The infant cannot consciously repent and believe and obey. So the Armenian cannot have any real logical basis for the salvation of an infant. But inasmuch as the Calvinistic position contends that faith and repentance and evangelical obedience are forms of the Spirit's operation, then they can hold that dead infants are savable in the same way. In which a botanist can declare that that young tree that was cut down without any fruit showing was truly an apple tree. Suppose that I was a botanist and that I knew that that tree, which was just but two feet high, was an apple tree. It had no apples on it. And then you came by and cut down that tree. Now, what would we say of that tree? I could say that that tree died of what? An apple tree. But someone might say, what's the fruit of it? It didn't have any apples on it. It had not matured enough to manifest the fruit. Hmm? What is an infant? It's but an immature adult. You cut off an infant in infancy. And what can we say about that infant? It was truly an infant. It was one of God's children, elected by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and regenerated by the Spirit. But you say, what was the fruit of it? It didn't have time to manifest the fruit. It did not mature enough to manifest the fruit of saving grace, which is repentance and faith and evangelical obedience. But that didn't mean it wasn't a true Child of God. So, this is the logic wherein that we propose for the salvation of an infant. Calvinism then permits its viewers or its proponents, its friends, to hold that though all infants are by nature guilty and depraved and exposed to eternal doom, yet they are truly and strictly savable because they are electable by the Father redeemable by the Son, and regeneratable by the Holy Spirit. Now, with respect to election and redemption and regeneration, the Calvinist divides all men into two categories, the elect and the reprobate. Now, those are biblical words. As we have seen, any system which tries to stay within the framework of the Bible is not afraid of these words, for they are biblical words. Whether that you believe in election based upon the pure sovereignty of God, or whether you believe upon foreseen faith, you must hold to something about election. You must hold to something about reprobation. The reprobate are referred to in the scripture as those whom God passes over, whom he passes by. And thus the Calvinist divides all mankind, including infants, into two classes of people. Elect infants, class A, non-elect infants, class B. With respect to the atonement, the Calvinist divides all infants into two categories, those who are atonable by the blood of Christ and those who are non-atonable by the blood of Christ, class B. Then, with respect to regeneration, the Calvinist divides all men into two categories. Those who are regenerated by the Spirit, class... They are the same people... Elected, redeemed, regenerated, class B are the same people, non-elect, non-atonable, and non-regeneratable. It's at this time that the critic of the Calvinist asked a question which greatly perverts the Calvinistic position, but it's an important question. The critic wanting to try to overthrow the Calvinistic position of infant salvation at this time, and try to force the Calvinist into teaching that some infants do actually perish, according to Calvinistic logic, the critic asked this question. What would be the fate of an infant in class B if that infant died in its infancy? Now, Mr. Calvinist, you say some infants are non-elect, non-redeemable, non-regeneratable. Now, Mr. Calvinist, what happens to an infant who dies in that category? And then, not waiting for the answer to be given by a knowledgeable Calvinist, the individual goes on and answers what they feel would be the logical reply. And here is what the logical reply is according to the critic's question. Not waiting for the Calvinist to answer, the critic then answers his own question by announcing to the world that all Calvinists acknowledge that some non-elect non-redeemed, non-regenerated infants die in their infancy, and that some Calvinists teach that there are, quote, infants in hell, not a span long, unquote. That is, not any longer than your arm, that some Calvinists teach that there are actually babies in hell suffering for their sins who are not over a span long. Now then... That is how the critics usually handle this matter. What would you do, Mr. Calvinist, with the baby who is non-elect, who is non-redeemed and non-regeneratable, if that child should die in its infancy? And then they would say you could do nothing but send it to hell, and that that's what Calvinists do if you divide all men into two categories of elect and non-elect. But what does the Calvinist actually reply? Now, listen carefully. The Calvinist replies that if, hypothetically, for that is a hypothetical question, if non-elect, non-redeemed, non-regenerated children were to die in that condition, they could be justly condemned on account of their original sin and their guilt, hypothetically if, for we have acknowledged that all are born in original sin. But the knowledgeable Calvinist insistently teaches that this is a hypothetical question which is a pure impossibility. For as a matter of fact, no reprobate infant does or can die in its infancy, and that is what we shall show as we progress. The Calvinist, in answering this question, what would happen to an infant who is non-elect, non-redeemed, and non-regeneratable if they die in their infancy? The Calvinist says, if that should happen, it would be just. But it never happens. Why? Because the reprobate infant is not allowed to die in its infancy. At this time, in furthering answering the question, the Calvinist divides the segment of elect infants into two categories. For example, category A, some infants that are elect die in infancy. But some infants that are elect do not die and grow up to maturity. Now, you've only got one or two categories there. If a person is born elect, as Jacob was, some die in infancy, some grow into maturity. If you're here tonight and you're a Christian, you were born elected by the Father. You didn't die in infancy. You lived through infancy and came to maturity. The elect are either permitted to die in their infancy, or they are allowed to live through their infancy into maturity. Concerning those who die in infancy, the Calvinist states that they are saved because they were elected by the Father, redeemed by the Son. Regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and they would have believed and been repentant and obedient to the gospel had they lived to moral maturity. Concerning those elect infants which do not die, but live on to moral manhood... The Calvinist says they too are saved because they were elected by the Father, redeemed by the Son, regenerated by the Spirit, and in the fullness of time, evidenced their salvation by actually believing, repenting, and obeying the gospel. So the Calvinist says there are two categories of elect infants. Those which die in infancy and those which live on to maturity. Those which die in infancy are saved because they are elect by the Father, redeemed by the Son, regenerated by the Spirit, and they did not have the maturity to manifest that. Those who become adults and were elect, are also saved the same way, only they make their election sure and manifest to themselves and to others by repenting and believing the gospel. The Calvinist, in answering the same question, then deals with the matter of reprobate infants. And the Calvinistic position holds this. Now listen carefully. It is held by the knowledgeable Calvinists that first, None of this class of humanity die in infancy, but that they all live to moral maturity and express the evil that is in them in their original sinful nature by willful and conscious acts of sin which sin bring up into their consciousness that they were born with a sinful nature. And thereby they can appreciate and recognize their just condemnation when it is assigned to them on the day of judgment. So that the Calvinist says of the reprobate that they must be allowed to live to the point of conscious maturity so that they can understand and appreciate the justice of God when he assigns them to their destiny in hell. Now, as we look a little bit further in this line of reasoning, To show our basis for holding that all infants dying in infancy are saved, we must now then see how the Calvinist applies his understanding of the justice of God to this matter. When we come to the matter of eternal punishment or temporal punishment, which involves suffering, we define what we mean by a penalty. The Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Is death. That is a penalty. If you watch a football game and the offensive team jumps offside, they are socked a penalty. And when Adam sinned, he was given a penalty by God. What does penalty mean? Penalty is defined as suffering inflicted On account of one's guiltiness, you're guilty, Adam, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall what? Surely die. That's the penalty. What is penalty? Now, get it in your minds. It is suffering inflicted on account of guilt. Now, follow me carefully. There are two and only two kinds of suffering which we know about. There is penal or penalty or punitive suffering, and there is disciplinary or chastening suffering. These two may take the same form, but they differ into the motive and to the aim. Pure justice inflicts punitive suffering. Love inflicts disciplinary suffering. The only two types of suffering which we know about, justice inflicts punitive suffering, love inflicts chastising suffering. Now, the end design of punitive suffering is to bring the sensitive person into a conscious connection with his suffering that he is deserving this by the justice of God. That's the end design of punitive suffering. In its strict rigor, it is designed to make the person suffering consciously aware that they have violated a law. And that's the extent of punitive suffering. The end design of disciplinary suffering or chastisement, now follow me carefully. Is to improve the person who is afflicted. The one kind of suffering, punitive, is inflicted by the justice of a law court. The other type of suffering, which is disciplinary, is inflicted in a father's house. The one is designed by the judge not to correct the criminal but to satisfy the justice of the law that was broken. The other suffering is designed by the father to improve the defects within the sufferer. And that's why parents should administer the correct kind of discipline. A discipline which is designed to improve the child. But punitive suffering is not designed by that. The one, punitive suffering, is an exhibition of magisterial wrath. The other, disciplinary suffering, is exhibited by paternal love. The end of the one, punitive suffering, is to vindicate justice regardless of the effect it has upon the sufferer. Justice is not taking any mercy upon the sufferer. Because it's not designed to improve the sufferer, but disciplinary suffering is designed to satisfy paternal love, to correct, and to remedy any defects recognized in the person. Now, these are the only two kinds of suffering which we know about in human understanding. Now, here is the deep distinction, then, between the Scripture's teaching on God's moral government and his moral discipline, which distinction is so often and disastrously overlooked by Christian teachers. The sheriff may whip his son as a convicted citizen and the center of the courthouse lawn by orders of the court. That is pure justice, punitive punishment. That same sheriff can take that same son, that same whipping rod into his backyard and give him the same amount of lashes, only there he's doing it with paternal love to correct the son. Beloved, if you do not make that distinction within the scriptures, you'll never be able to satisfy the justice and the love of God. You'll never be able to see how those two can get along together. You'll never be able to see how that God, in moral justice, punishes the wicked with no consideration for them as a sufferer. Only that they be consciously aware of why they are suffering, that they have violated God's holy law. But then that same God, out of paternal love for his children, can correct his children with a love designed to improve and remedy their defects. One is done to satisfy the justice of God. The other is designed to satisfy the love of God Almighty. For punishment, though, to be rational and effective, The subject who is being punished must be sensible and fully conscious so that his conscience may recognize the reason why he is suffering. Justice cannot be satisfied if the sufferer is unconscious and unknowing of why he is suffering. Now, let us suppose. That there was a criminal who was unconscious and he was drugged or put to sleep at the moment that his penalty was inflicted. Let's say that he was going to be hanged and he was put to sleep just prior to his execution. Now would his death be a satisfying of true penal justice? And we reply, absolutely not. Why do we not put condemned criminals to sleep before they're executed? Are we inhumane? No. The function of magisterial wrath is to bring that conscience of that criminal into a connection with the victim which he has violated. So that when he suffers the penalty, he can appreciate what is being done to him because he has broken the law. That's why we don't put people to sleep before we execute them. They must be conscious of what they have done and that their suffering is a direct reaction or a direct cause of why they are suffering. That's why God doesn't put anybody to sleep when he sends them to hell. Hmm? God doesn't administer uh what is it? An- anesthetic? Is that, is that no, that's what you cleanse. What is that to put you out with? Hmm? All right, whatever. Whatever. That's what they put you to sleep with. God doesn't administer that in hell. Why? Is he inhumane? No. Because in punitive justice, he's not concerned with correcting the sufferer. He's concerned with making the sufferer conscious of why he is suffering. He has broken what? God's holy law. And he shall forever be reminded of that. Now, suppose that I was being tried for a crime... And in the middle of the court proceedings, I suddenly pull out a gun and shoot somebody in the courtroom. And then somebody knocks me unconscious. Now, here I'm in a court of law. Witnesses have seen me perform a murder. So while I am unconscious, they immediately call a new court to session. They try me. They find me guilty and sentence me. To execution by the firing squad. Now, what should they do in order to execute me? Should they place me unconscious in a chair over there in the corner while I am asleep and execute me for my crime? Or should they wait until I have come to full consciousness so that I can relate the law which I have broken." Now I hope you are following me in this train of logic. This is why the Calvinist says that all reprobate infants must be allowed to mature into a state of consciousness before they die so that they can justly appreciate the punishment inflicted upon them for their deeds. And that's why God allows many of the reprobate to die at different ages. That's why he allows some to live until they get gray hairs upon them, until they become very, very aged and live many, many years of wickedness. But my friend, don't think that's a blessing necessarily, because they will be reminded throughout eternity of all their sins which they have done against God, and there will be no mercy. Now let it be clearly understood that God Almighty does not send any human being to hell just for the sake of seeing them suffer. This is sometimes what we are charged with unjustly as being Calvinists, that God just likes to see people suffer. That is not the case. God sends a wicked person to hell, not just because it pleases him to see that person suffer, but in order to inflict penalty and to vindicate the righteous demands of his holy law. And to show the outrage that here is a person who dared to violate the holy law of God. If a woman is raped, she has had her rights violated. And that rapist needs to be brought into a conscious awareness that the degree of suffering which he is experiencing is in direct proportion to the rights which he violated of that woman. The sinner needs to be brought to his consciousness that he has violated the holy rights of an eternal God. And that's the purpose of God's punishing a person in hell. God, it is said in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God does not delight in suffering as such. He can only view suffering with toleration and complacency as he views it in the category of a penalty which satisfies the attribute of justice. God is not a monster. He's not some pitiless moloch who cast his children into the burning fires just to watch them writh in anger or in, in agony. That's not the God of the Bible. He is not a God who has to get a pound of flesh cut out just to satisfy his greed. He is not a God who is somewhat insane and who has to stick pins in feeling creatures in order to watch them jump. And get delight out of it. That is, he doesn't inflict torture upon a person. But God does inflict the torments of hell in order that the person who is the evildoer and the sufferer can be brought into a connection with each other. I have sinned, and I'm suffering for my sin. Hell is a rational, conscious, punishment. Luke chapter 16 and verse 25, Abraham told the rich man to what? Son, what? Who can tell me the next word? Remember. Remember. Son, remember. Remember how conscious you lived a good life back there. Son, remember. Remember. Now, beloved, that is something that God could not say to any unconscious infant. Little creature, remember. Follow me? He couldn't say that to the infant who died in its unconscious state. Therefore, justice could not be satisfied. In order for justice to be fully satisfied, the mind of God must be satisfied that he is just in inflicting it. And the mind of the sufferer must be consciously aware of why it is suffering. Thus, God sends no reprobates to hell as infants, but allows them to grow into conscious maturity in this life so that they can be brought to the judgment of God and be made conscious of their just deserts throughout all eternity to come. To execute the death penalty upon an unconscious infant would be for God to defeat the only motive he has in sending any human being to an endless hell. The sentence of condemnation for original sin was just. But the execution of that sentence demands that it be delayed until the child through his own actual personal sinning be made aware of what he is being punished for. What course of action then shall the God's providence pursue with respect to a reprobate infant? What other course does reason and wisdom and justice suggest? when we remember that the whole purpose and meaning of God in sending any human being to hell is to mete out to him that punitive suffering which that sensible person shall be able to feel and as an intelligent being can understand and appreciate why he is suffering. There is, there can be, but only one answer to this question. What course does God take with the reprobate? Here it is. God's providence must delay the death of the reprobate infant until he comes to maturity, and then he translates his original sin in Adam into conscious, personal, actual sin, so that there may be a basis in his own consciousness for understanding why he is suffering as such. Consequently, then, a reprobate infant cannot die in infancy. Such a result would defeat the very indesign of God's punitive suffering. Consequently, then, and conversely, all infants dying in infancy must be elect, redeemed, and regenerated by the Spirit of God. If God allows no reprobate infants to die because they could not consciously satisfy punitive suffering, then all infants dying in infancy must be elect, redeemed, And regenerated by the Father. The death of an infant, therefore, is the irrefutable proof of its very salvation. But its living and coming of age is not a proof of its non-election. And it's not an assurance of its damnation. Because as an adult, it may yet give evidence of its election by believing, repenting, and obeying the gospel. If, therefore, we see the infant die, we know that it was the of God, a beneficiary of the atoning blood of Jesus, a subject of the regenerating grace of the Spirit. But if we see the infant grow and mature into manhood, then we are agnostic as to its election until we see the fruits of the Spirit in its life, which are repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So nothing can prove the non-election, the non-salvation of any man, except we see that man die in unbelief and impenitence and disobedience. And inasmuch as all human understanding of data is imperfect and all judgment is exposed to error, then every balanced man will be very cautious about signing anybody to hell. We must be very cautious about that, because we don't know all the data. At hand, when any man dies. But we do know infants die, do we not? Then if they die, is their death a punitive suffering or a disciplinary suffering? If it cannot be punitive, then it must be disciplinary. What then is the purpose of God in infant death? If it is construed as disciplinary, then it's beneficial for the baby. Oh, how comforting this can be to parents who lose that child. Remember, disciplinary suffering is designed to remedy a defect in the sufferer. What's the benefit of the child dying in infancy? It's cut off from all actual sin. It's cut off from all actual sorrow. It's translated from an earthly home to a heavenly home. Do they benefit? You better believe it. Whoever told you that living a long time in this old sinful world was an advantage? The longer you live, the more sorrow you're going to be exposed to. You live to be a hundred, you'll go to your grave with more sorrow than the man who lived to be fifty. God spares that infant sorrow. It's a blessing, a chastening form of suffering. So that while it does suffer and it's sensible of pain in its death, it can then enter in sympathetically and appreciative into the sufferings of its Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ itself. He suffered. The infant suffers. The infant can appreciate that. So what then is the final cause or purpose of infant death? If it's punitive, then that cannot accomplish its design. If it's remedial, through it they can be brought into fellowship with the suffering of Christ, co-sharers in the worship around the throne of God, and they can mingle their voices with those singing hallelujahs, singing the song of Moses, and of the Lamb. Oh, my friend, we can say that while all are condemned on account of Adam's sins, none are actually actually sent to hell except for their own sins. You examine your scriptures with all the text you can find on the Judgment Day, the Judgment of God, and every scripture, without exception. Men will be charged with their personal conscious sins. Search your Bibles there. Original and Adamic sin must be translated into personal and conscious sin before the judgment. Hence, all reprobate infants cannot die in infancy. They must be allowed to grow into maturity and manifest their sinfulness against God. And God can leave them there as an adult and bring them to judgment. Hence, obviously, the answer then, in order for God to be just, then any child dying in infancy, its very death is an evidence of it being a saved child.